Ladies and gentlemen, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Wherever you are in the world, we appreciate you being with us right now. This is Lovey Life, a Dome podcast. Dome is a digital and bilingual media company specialized in law at the supranational level. So for all news, comments, analysis related to law in Africa and in the rest of the world, go to our website, dome-online.com, and follow us on our social media platforms, the links of which are listed below. This, however, is neither a technical nor a political podcast. To be honest, sometimes it's barely a legal one. The only prerequisite needed is to have an open mind and 30 minutes or so to spare. We sometimes will have guests from everywhere around the world, and we will always be keen to hear your thoughts. We have a fantastic episode for you today, so please, stay with us and weigh in while we argue the case, Love Life. Before we properly dive into it, Let's explain the premise of the series and the way the episodes will be structured for the most part. As everyone else, we follow the news, and there are some cases that touch people for some reason. You, me, your neighbor, your doctor, your plumber. We become so invested in it that at the end, we, as a group, as a society, we become judge and jury. We form the court of public opinion. We pass the judgment and carry out the sentences, which is what, I suppose, cancelling is. To a certain extent, it has always worked that way. But lately, we as a society have been at odds with certain decisions given in a court of law. And that gap is fascinating for someone with a legal training, but who, likes everyone else, has a personal opinion informed by his or her life. So, the idea is to take legal concepts, explain them using a case study, usually a lawsuit or a situation that has captured our collective attention, and wonder where, how, and why a gap started to appear between the court of law and the court of public opinion. Now that we have explained it, let's settle, shall we? That was a very smooth transition, if I can say so myself. As you can see by the title, today's episode is dedicated to settlement. It is a bit unusual for a choice of a legal topic, but I truly believe that it is one of those legal concepts that is widely misunderstood, and as a result, gets a bad rep. If we're being honest, when one thinks of settlement, the first idea that comes to mind has really nothing to do with law. More often than not, we are having a conversation about relationships, romantic ones. If you are over 25, and certainly over 30, you have said or have heard some iteration of the phrase, I don't want to settle, do not settle. He or she has settled. This is so sad. In our collective minds, settling is associated with giving up on either oneself, someone, or something else it has a pejorative connotation. This unconscious bias that we all hold against this term will likely permeate when we hear about it in the legal context. So now, let's talk about settlement in a legal sense. As we get to spend more time together, you will hear me say time and time again that one of the most important rules in any argument, in law or in life for that matter, is that you need to frame the issue. 
If you're going to make or have an argument, you need to have clear parameters to make sure that you are one, not talking across purposes, and also two, because it will set you up for success. This is a conceptual equivalency of choosing the battlefield. The idea being, and here I am paraphrasing The Art of War by Sun Tzu, of course, that he who chooses the battlefield has already won if he chooses wisely. So then, what exactly is settling in the legal context? Simply put, it is the act of adjusting or determining the dealings or disputes between persons without pursuing the matter through a trial. Typically, it occurs when the defendant agrees to some or all of the plaintiff's claims and decides not to fight the matter in court. So, usually, the settlement requires the defendant to pay the plaintiff some monetary amount to end the litigation. To better explain this concept, we will take as a case study the matter Virginia Guilfrey versus Prince Andrew, Duke of York. It is a perfect example because it not only illustrates the mechanism of a legal settlement, but it also clearly shows the divide between the court of law and what I will refer to as a court of public opinion, meaning the general public, all of us. The facts of the case are, as I imagine, very well known to the American and British listeners. But for those of you who have not followed the development of the story, here is a brief summary. Mr. Jeffrey Epstein was an American billionaire who had been convicted on running a sex traffic ring both in the United States and abroad for many years with the help of many associates, the most prominent of which being a British socialite, Gillen Maxwell. They recruited girls, often minors, under the pretense of hiring them as masseuses for famous and wealthy people. These girls were then abused and forced to provide sexual gratification to Mr. Epstein and his friends and acquaintances. One of these girls was then Miss Virginia Roberts, now Virginia Guffrey. She was, according to her testimony, a victim of Mr. Epstein from 2000 to 2002, forced to be on call for him to perform sexual favors. She also alleges that she was lent out by her abuser numerous times to powerful and wealthy friends of his, one of which being Prince Andrew, Duke of York, when she was, and this is crucial, 17 at the time of the alleged sexual assault and battery. In other words, underaged according to New York law. Once again, according to her complaint, she complied by fear for either her life or physical safety. She gave multiple interviews in the press detailing her allegations that you can find with a very quick research online. A public relation war ensued with the accused, Prince Andrew, when he denied these allegations, stating that there never had been an issue of consent and that he believed that at the time of these encounters, the plaintiff was of age. The battle moved from the court of public opinion to the court of law, with Miss Guilfrey filing a civil lawsuit in the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York on August 9, 2021. The now defendant, Prince Andrew, 
announced his intention to fight the matter in court. And that is what happened until February 15, 2022, when both parties informed the court that they reached an agreement. I'm going to read in full the communication sent out to the court because I believe it is important. It reads, quote, Virginia Guilfrey and Prince Andrew have reached an out-of-court settlement. The parties will file a stipulated dismissal upon Ms. Guilfrey's receipt of the settlement, the sum of which is not being disclosed. Prince Andrew intends to make a substantial donation to Ms. Guilfrey's charity in support of victim rights. Prince Andrew has never intended to malign Ms. Guilfrey's character, and he accepts that she has suffered both as an established victim of abuse and as a result of unfair public attacks. It is known that Jeffrey Epstein trafficked countless young girls over many years. Prince Andrew regrets his association with Epstein and commends the bravery of Ms. Guilfrey and other survivors in standing up for themselves and others. He pledges to demonstrate his regret for his association with Epstein by supporting the fight against the evils of sex trafficking and by supporting its victims. End of quote. If you allow me, I will read once again the operative part of the statement because I believe that there lies the key to our collective feeling on the matter. The important part, as I understand it, tell me if you agree, reads, quote, The parties will file a stipulated dismissal upon Ms. Guilfrey's receipt of the settlement, the sum of which is not being disclosed. Prince Andrew intends to make a substantial donation to Ms. Guilfrey's charity in support of victims' rights, end of quote. You see, I think that the act of paying is what is confusing people and tipping the scale. Because as a group, as society, we conflate the notion of settlement with that of an admission of guilt. The rationale being, why would one pay if he or she knows that he or she is innocent? If they agree to pay, there must be some degree of truth to the allegation made against him or her. That makes sense, right? It is a thought process that we can all follow and understand. Now let's talk law. Not in terms of actual articles and precedents. That will rarely happen, unfortunately. Rather, I want to give you an insight into the mind and training of someone who has read and practiced law. When we put our legal hats on, the decision of Prince Andrew to settle this case is not shocking. It is not even surprising. I won't go as far as saying that it makes sense, but we can see why it was always a real possibility and why, quite frankly, his mistake was to emphatically state that he was going to see this legal battle through. Necessary PR move at the time, I understand, but it weakened this position in the long run. Why was it always a real possibility, you ask? Simply because settling is in fact standard practice in law. In the day-to-day practice, law is essentially transactional in its implementation, 
contrary to what is depicted in TV shows. Lawyers everywhere around the world are trying to come up with deals to avoid litigation every day. It happens all the time. It's happening as we speak. Sometimes it happens pre-trial, sometimes mid-trial. It simply is the reality of the job. Then, the logical next question is, why would an innocent person settle? And the answer could be as simple or as complicated as you wish. For a thousand reasons that may be completely irrelevant to the merits of the case. It may be a distrust of the system. The loss of privacy, because everything that happens in a court of law is entered into public record, people. Don't forget that. The nature of the claim, the particular character of the person, the length of the trial, the embarrassment of having to testify, the costs, the fact that you wish to protect someone or something else, that it may be absolutely disastrous for your business at that particular moment in time, etc., etc. Quite honestly, the possibilities are endless. Therefore, however tempting it is, and however prone we are to do so, we really should try and refrain from thinking that the person who settles is necessarily guilty or even hiding something. One of my law teachers when I was a student happened to be a Queen Counsel, eminent barrister in the UK, which is simply put, a trial lawyer. And the title of Queen Counsel is reserved for the top tier of practitioners. You must be a brilliant mind, have put some real time in, and have had some real success to be awarded that distinction. He specialized, and I'm sure he still does, in white-collar crimes. And during one of our classes, he once told us that you litigate to enforce a right and you negotiate to protect an interest. I thought it was brilliantly put, and it stuck with me for all these years. The tricky part, of course, is that the notion of interest varies greatly depending on who you are asking. So, to go back to our case study, I'm not opining on whether the defendant did in fact commit the act he was accused of, but, legally speaking, settling without admitting to anything makes sense. The alternative was to have a very public and very graphic trial that would have been extremely difficult for both Ms. Guthrie and the Duke of York. As it stands, from a legal point of view, Ms. Guthrie is a victim of Mr. Epstein. That is certain. That is law. Mr. Epstein was tried and convicted on multiple counts. But... This is the part that is a bit controversial. Again, at this moment in time, and again, legally speaking, she is not a victim of the Duke of York, as Miss Guthrie has made the tactical choice for reasons of her own to agree to that settlement. She is an alleged victim. There is a difference. A massive one. He was neither tried nor convicted of sexual assault and or battery, and has never admitted to any such behavior. 
and since law does not have a gray area in the matter, he is, as we speak, a presumed innocent individual. By the way, a settlement can occur in almost every area of the law. It is not limited to civil litigation. Let me give you some quick examples since we are at it. Contract law is, of course, the quintessential transactional law. Everyone has signed a contract in his life and hopefully has read it beforehand. If you have read your contract as you should, you know that in virtually every one of them, there is a clause dealing with disputes which mostly talks about alternative dispute resolution mechanisms, like settling. Criminal law is another one that does not immediately come to mind when talking about settling, but negotiations happen before, and sometimes, though less frequently, during trial. The prosecution and the defendant may work out a deal like, for example, relevant information in exchange for a reduced charge or no prison sentence, depending, of course, on the alleged unlawful act committed. Settling is also prevalent in international law, which happens to be my specialty, and Dome's focus. One of the many examples we can take is a case filed before the International Court of Justice by Timor Leste against Australia on December 2013. The case dealt with the seizure and detention of certain documents and data. What happened was, the Australian government raided the office of a lawyer working for the state of Timor-Leste, seized some documents which contain privileged and sensitive information that pertained to a different arbitration proceeding between the two states. So, Timor-Leste filed an application before the International Court of Justice. What happened after the filing is that both parties went back to the negotiation table, worked out a deal, the documents were returned, and Timor-Leste withdrew his application. In other words, there was a settlement. The summary of this case and all other cases filed before the International Court of Justice are available on DOME on dome-online.com. To conclude, irrespective of what the law says, and how it actually works. Most of the public still view Prince Andrew as an abuser who paid his way out of way more serious sanctions and Miss Guilfrey as a victim. This is to us the interesting phenomenon. This is the reason we have started this series. Hopefully by now, my rambling have started to make some kind of sense and you understand better one why we chose to call this series Lovey Life, and two, why this is our first episode. This is a perfect illustration where there is such a huge gap between what people feel should be just and what the law is at that particular moment in time. The consequences of this gap cannot be overstated. There certainly has been, in the last five years at least, a movement that was initially designed to help victims of abuse to come forward, which was, and still is, to be clear, very much necessary. As I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm trying to say, let me emphasize this. We need to foster 
an environment where victims of abuse feel safe enough to come forward so that justice can be served. The idea behind this movement was to empower these victims by giving them the assurance that they would be believed. The problem is, if you translate that idea in legal terms, what that means is that at least to some degree, we, in the court of public opinion, now operate in a way where the doubt should profit the person making the allegations, not the accused, and that the burden of the proof is now on the accused to prove that he or she is innocent of the allegations made against him or her. It may sound anecdotal, or it may look like it is a technicality to you, but ask any lawyer, and he or she will tell you that this is a seismic departure from the rule of law and the way we envision what a fair trial is, given the fact that the presumption of innocence is one of the most sacrosanct principles of the legal system. According to that rule, the onus is on the plaintiff to prove his or her claims to the correct legal standard, and the doubt benefits the accused. The shift may sound insignificant, but I assure you, it is not, and the consequences on someone's life are dire, irrespective of the outcome of a trial. Look at Prince Andrew. Because if we, collectively, you, me, your parents, mine, your doctors, your butcher, the general public, if we decide that a person has in fact done what he or she has been accused of, we act swiftly, don't we? There is no double degree of jurisdiction. We punish immediately by taking everything away. Their good name, that of their family, their ability to make a living, their right to have friends, their previous good deeds. Everything goes. We cancel them. And no one knows for how long. We, as a society, have decided to take matters into our own hands, perhaps as a reaction to one too many mistakes from the judicial system. The idea that a society judges one of its members is not novel, of course. It's as ancient as humankind. What is new is that the rules we apply in the court of public opinion seem sometimes, and more and more frequently, to be the opposite of what is applicable in a court of law. And that, in time, may cause a real problem. I understand and I completely agree that there is a lot to be changed and or improved about the way law works. And there certainly are a lot of avenues that we could explore so that law and justice can finally be used synonymously. This is not an attempt to defend the practice of law or the rule of law at all. Believe me, when you practice law long enough, it is very clear that we have a long way ahead of us still. But whatever its shortcomings, the rule of law should be summarized as follow. We must believe what has been proven 
and we must investigate what has been alleged. To remove the middle part of the sentence and say we must believe what has been alleged, period, is not only dangerous, but unsustainable in both law and life. I don't know how things will evolve, and I certainly do not know how to fix all the issues we have raised in this episode. All I can say is, if as a whole we are to make lasting and significant progress and continue to strengthen the social contract that binds us all, we must put our collective energy to push for reforms that would benefit all and not only destroy few. How to best do that, I have no idea. If you do, we would love to hear from you. So please, drop a comment on our social media platforms, the links of which are listed below, using the hashtag LoveyLife. Well, <laughs> that was a rough first episode. I have never recorded anything aside for a voicemail in my entire life. It is quite daunting. I promise I'll get better at it, and I hope you'll stick around to see the improvement. Thank you so much for being with us today. I want to hear what you have to say. Do you have any comments, questions? Does it make sense? Does it not? Leave a comment below the link of the episode on our social media platforms. The transcript of the program will be available on Doom's website in both French and English. If you have enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing, liking it, and subscribing to the show. We will be back with our next episode next Wednesday. In the meantime, please stay safe and take care of yourself. <laughs>